0: Thanks for tuning in to VSB After the Bell.
1: bell
0: I'm your host, Gianna Chow. VSB, otherwise known as the Vancouver School Board, is located on the unceded traditional lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. The district is among the most diverse school systems in Canada with an annual enrollment of just under 50,000 students from kindergarten to grade 12 and adult education students.
1: Heo ho ho. heo. hey heo heo ho. Hey, hey, ho ho.
0: That was Chaz Desjardins, Acting Director of Instruction for Indigenous Education, sharing the Gathering Strength" song. We'll talk more about that and the meaning behind this song later in the podcast. As we approach National Indigenous Peoples Day on June 21st, this month on the podcast, we talk about Indigenous matters. One of the three goals of the Vancouver School District's Education Plan outlines an effort to continue our reconciliation journey with First Nations, Métis, and Inuit by increasing knowledge, awareness, appreciation of, and respect for Indigenous histories, traditions, cultures, and contributions. Achieving this goal, however, does not rest solely with the District's Indigenous Education Department. Instead, the goal puts the onus on all educators, including those who are non-indigenous, to help bring Indigenous knowledge and practice into the classroom. To tell us more about how this is done, we have Stacy McKeeran, a teacher at Eric Hamber Secondary, and Prairie Anderson, a Grade Ten student from Lord. Bing with us today, we also have Chaz Desjardins, who you just heard share the Gathering Strengths song with us. Welcome, everyone.
1: Welcome. Thank you.
0: Before we start, can each of you introduce yourself, maybe starting with um, Chaz?
1: Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Chaz Desjardins. My traditional name is Kaminisu Kamawap Bisuat, which translates from Nehiyawiwin into English as helper of Thunderbirds. I'm the daughter of the late Robert Edmund Desjardins, Métis, and daughter of Diane Lorraine Johnson, whose settler ancestry is English, French, and Spanish. I'm a citizen of the Cold Lake First Nations, Treaty 6, Iskwe, and a proud mother of two young daughters, my oldest being Paige, who is 18, and my youngest being Kaylin, who's 11. And I'm the acting director of instruction for Indigenous education with the Vancouver School Board.
2: Um, my name is Prairie Anderson. I've lived in Vancouver my whole life, and I'm a fifth generation Vancouverite on my dad's side. And on my mom's side, I am Scottish and Cree Metis. I go to Lord Bang Secondary and I'm grade 10, and I play the violin with the Bang Orchestra.
3: Hello, everyone. My name is Stacey McEachran. I am a teacher at Eric Hamber Secondary since 2008, and I've been an educator since 2001. I am Anishinaabe Kwe on my mother's side and also settler Scottish, English, Irish and French. I am happy to be here today. Thank
1: you.
0: Chaz, you sang and drummed the Gathering Strength song at the beginning. Can you explain why and what's the song's significance?
1: Well, the drum is important in many Indigenous nations. Um, For myself personally, I'm a drum carrier and there are a lot of protocols and teachings that come with it. For me, the drum is about medicine and when I'm in need of good medicine, um, the songs I sing uh, take me home and uh, make me feel better. Songs, all songs have meaning and importance. And so when we receive a song, um, we re- we receive a song from an elder or a guide. They will share it, uh, a song with us. And um, this song uh, was shared with me by a really good friend. Um, the elder, uh, Jerry uh, Ullman from the Stapmick Nation, has gifted the song for people. And so the teaching of the song is it's called the Gathering Strength Song. And how it's been shared with me is when you are in need of strength, the song will come to you. And so when we uh, listen to songs and those songs that are public, um, you hope that the song may hit your heart. So at a time when you're in need of that song, that song will come back to you. And some of us carry drums. Some of us don't. Um, You don't need a drum to sing a song. Um, All you need to is remember uh, the song when you are in need of the song and uh, at that time. Everyone's journey on reconciliation is hard, and many are on uh, different parts of the pathway for reconciliation. So keep this song in mind uh, when you are hitting a a point where you're finding yourself struggling. And uh, the hope that um, this will bring you some strength to continue on to the journey that you uh, are moving forward with.
0: Thanks again for sharing that song with our listeners and teaching us the significance of drumming. Stacey, I also understand that you teach an Indigenous focused class.
3: That's correct.
0: Can you let listeners know what that is?
3: Yes, I teach BC First Peoples twelve, which up until next year has been an elective course in the for the ministry and at my school. And for the past eleven years, I've had either one or two blocks of predominantly non-Indigenous students in the course. It is focused on BC nations, cultures, traditions, languages um, and the celebration of of everything about the peoples of this land now called British Columbia, but it's also extending to other parts of what is now called Canada to look at uh, the colonial project and how it has impacted Indigenous lives and lands since contact. So it's really um, a very important course that is very rich in information, but also uh, important truths for all Canadians to know. And ever since I've started, I've forever had students returning After graduation or after they've taken the course to say, "Oh, I get it now," and I learned so much that I still carry with me. So I think that is a really important piece that the knowledge extends beyond just the classroom walls.
0: Maybe for um, listeners who are non-Indigenous, can you explain a little bit more when when students come back and say they get it now? What do they get? The Indigenous ways of learning. Maybe a little bit more
3: detail on that. I think just. When we look at I have a student who emailed me and said I'm going into oceanography at UBC and I understand now that it's not a choice what is happening and what what I'm choosing to do in my career is is necessity and what I've learned in your course about indigenous worldview and stewardship and connection to the land. I now better understand how to do that work because I have a broader and more holistic view myself of and of what needs to be done to protect the oceans. And she mentioned that it was incumbent upon her and she wasn't sure what she was going to do. But she said, once I stepped foot into that course, I realized this is what I need to do. And so I think just the reflections back that I've received from students is... I now understand more about reconciliation or I now understand more about what unceded means or I now understand how to better care for the land and have a better relationship with the land. And I think just the broadening perspective of a worldview and way of being human that has been suppressed and oppressed for so long, they are now just broadened in their own perspective of who they are and what their history of displacement might be in their own families. And so I think just a broader perspective of um, just the story of Canada as well. Mm.
0: So um, how, do we, how do we even start our reconciliation journey and begin our Indigenous learning, for, um, particularly for those who are non-Indigenous? As an educator, what's your perspective on that?
3: Well, I think when there's fear to do something wrong, I think the best thing to do, because that's commonly what um, one of the hurdles is for non-Indigenous educators, is to really make sure it's done right in the sense of you're representing um, in your classroom. The knowledge isn't necessarily your own. And so am I following the right protocols? Am I Um, Do I have permission to say what I'm going to say? But then there's also the pieces around, well, those truths that are being unveiled and it's hard, heavy, emotional labor. Um, But it's also really important that people are doing their own work. It's not the Indigenous um, person on staff or community to be the ones to fully educate the educators. So... There's a lot of work that has to be done just as a person to be understanding of what, what it's all about. What is the journey of reconciliation? What is my role as an educator on this journey? And that has to come from within. And then I guess just transferring that into the classroom would be to be respectful of of. Yeah. What is the truth? How can I verify it? What can I share? What is sacred? And just understanding those protocols um, is important as well. So you mentioned um, that
0: people have to do their own work. Are there some specific tips that you can give listeners if they are interested in, you know, kind of going through their own reconciliation journey? Well,
1: just you know, adding on um, to. The previous comments from Stacy. it is a personal journey. And uh, I think um, Canadians, non-Indigenous uh, people need to open their hearts and open their minds. And, you know, I've heard from elders, the, lo- the longest journey anyone can take uh, is uh, from their head to their heart. And so, um, we need to be open, uh, to, uh, continuing to learn, which is a lifelong journey. And, uh, you know, our journey takes us around many corners and it's going to take us over many hills and it's going to take us over many mountains and, uh, to be prepared, uh, to do that hard work. And there's no right or wrong way to, to begin that journey, um, for reconciliation, but it's imperative now and the day that we live that, um, you know, the truth is there. It's it's in front of everyone, and so um, everyone's work making uh, the invisible visible um, is something that has to be taken on collectively as uh, all Canadians in society need to do that. And and so there's really no right or wrong work. Uh, or way, I should say, to do to begin the work. Um, I think my advice uh, to people when they begin that reconciliation journey is just really uh, being humble and uh, being honest uh, as they move forward and getting out into the community and connecting with people um, who can help support you and being Kind of truthful uh, with your intentions, with your own personal learning, um, is really important. And that there are many people out there who can assist you, um, but you need to be honest with your intentions and your truthfulness of how you're approaching the work. And do you really want to do it? And so th- that's just a few points that a suggestion that I have.
0: So you know, reconciliation is not easy. Right. The truths are sometimes, uh, it's 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 heavy and it's hard to, to learn about. Um, what are the things that you found most difficult in approaching reconciliation in the educational system, Chaz?
1: I think for myself, you know, I've had to reconcile this history, not ever receiving the history of the education I should have been given when I was going to school, the time that I was going to school. I'm very grateful now that of the work of Indigenous education in the last probably 10 years has really transformed um, at such a great speed. And I know that my children have a, a, a huge and much deeper understanding of what it means to be Indigenous. My children are proud, in particular, my youngest one who attends, you know, cultural classes in North Vancouver um, and has received lots of drum teachings, but you know it's imperative uh, as my for myself as a parent to uh, provide these opportunities for her. But when I think about the education I received, is nowhere near the education that uh, uh, children are receiving today. And for me, that gives me uh, hope uh, to know that children. Um, are receiving a much more of a cultural education, a much more of a truthful education than they did when I was going to school back in the early 1980s, where you know there was no visible of anything indigenous in education, and in fact, um, a lot of people um, we had no idea uh, you, that other people were indigenous because of the stigma attached to being. Uh, an indigenous person. And so, you know, we, we've had to come to reconcile this whole history of my, through my whole journey. And I'm, you know, um, had to, you know, reach out to my own communities and many of us live away from our, our home communities. And we, you know, colonization has done a very good job of severing us from our kinship relations or our ancestors. And so for many of us who didn't get that education, we are the ones now who are um re um uh, finding those uh um pathways back home and so we bring our children with us and we know that uh, we it's imperative that we provide these opportunities but education now is in a way better place than it is was 30 40 50 years ago and really from, you know, the time of our ancestors and our relatives who had many who had to attend residential schools. So it's not perfect. Um, You know, there's always hope on the horizon and and we we continue to uh, transform Indigenous education by our own physical presence as Indigenous peoples in the education system.
0: I 100% agree with that. I can even say when I went to school too in Vancouver, there was not as much emphasis on Indigenous ways, Indigenous learnings, even the land acknowledgement. But I want to hear from Prairie as a student. What has been your experience at school? Um, Can you recall a time where you felt what you were learning honored
2: your Indigenous
0: heritage?
2: Well, I started high school like peak COVID. So it was like very different from what it was now it was like we only went for an hour a day so it was like very hard to connect with teachers and friends make friends in general and like just learning was made very difficult that way but i really do love school and it's like gone better every year and now there's like i'm a, just a part of so much in school like all the different communities and just just being there in general i just really like it so um i mentioned land acknowledgments earlier i
0: know that You know, when when I was going up in school, and I'm sure Chaz and Stacey, we didn't do an acknowledgments, Um, but now it's become a standard protocol and at assemblies that you see at schools um, and even maybe even presentations for you and at gatherings for sure. Um, Prairie, from your perspective, do you know why we do them and why it's so important?
2: Yeah, I do. And I think I have gotten... As I said, I was part of the Lord Bing Orchestra, so I have gotten to do land acknowledgments through that as a Métis person, so I've done that. And I do think it is very important to acknowledge and share and everything that this is the First Nations and such land, and it is very important. Yeah. Um. As a student, what are you learning in school
0: that's related to Indigenous ways? Do you have some specific examples that maybe you can share with parents who don't or or adults who don't have children in the education system or maybe a newcomer who, uh, you know, this is very different for them and for them to learn? How is a student experiencing the reconciliation journey that we talk about?
2: Well, it's, like, brought up a lot in social social studies, so it's always being mentioned there, and it's, like, brought to attention, like, very much so, and just, like, mm, like, placed front and center. So it's, like, that's something that they take, like, a lot of time, like, teaching about and just incorporating in through all the different lessons that all the teachers teach at school.
0: And when you hear about topics like um, the unidentified children being found, you know, how does
2: that make you feel? It makes me feel like sad, but like it's also getting more attention now. And I feel like that is very important to bring it up and to have to let all the everyone feel these maybe uncomfortable emotions because it is happening and it had happened. So it is very important From an educator's lens, um, can
0: you tell us why are land acknowledgements important?
3: Well, the first thing to talk about is how they can't be performative acts. So I think they're important because you are honoring the people and the land and giving the rights that they deserve um, and honoring the stewardship and the health of the lands and the peoples on whose territory we live. And it's a gesture of gratitude, but it's also acknowledgement that we are benefiting from the displacement of many Indigenous peoples. And as Chaz said, like, Many people have literally been displaced from the territory that we now call home, wherever we live across Turtle Island. So it's really important to acknowledge not just the gratitude for the land, the nature, the beauty, and how it's been cared for since time immemorial, but also to acknowledge that this is the truth, that because Indigenous people have been displaced and... Oppressive legislation has led to um, fracturing of communities that settler communities have benefited, and to acknowledge that gratitude too, as well. So the performative action around just saying the words and not knowing the meaning or not having any personal connection to the words that you're saying is, is problematic and harmful. So I think it's important to teach students that you have to be sure what you're saying and why you're saying it and to have it come from from the heart.
0: How do you foster an appreciation of Indigenous ways of learning and knowing for non-Indigenous students?
3: I, I, I always start talking about identity with my students so that they are aware that we are all humans and we all have stories to tell and so again as i said earlier i want students to recognize that their family story and as if they are identifying as a settler to this land that their story probably has some displacement or um, fracturing of their own kinship and community And so just to open their heart to the empathy of of human-to-human kinship and compassion. And then just the Indigenous ways of seeing knowledge is to um, build a relationship with the knowledge. And as an educator, I first and foremost build a relationship with my students. And uh, it's really very relational and important to learn from our students and be reciprocal in that learning. So always being open to what students have to teach me is really important. And then just the self-reflective piece and the lifelong learning and the cyclical learning that just developing my lessons and my, my year, you now my semester, in a way that is is always telling a story and always coming back to key points of those stories so that we can just see that cyclical nature of learning, that we always come back and then we move forward, and that learning doesn't stop once they're finished in my class. Um, And learning comes in different ways and can be demonstrated in different ways. So...
0: From my perspective as a non-Indigenous person, I think I've learned over the years, it's not just empathy and compassion, but it's also the openness and willingness to learn because, um, you know, I was brought up in the colonial ways and that's all I see. And so sometimes it's It is hard to change that mindset, but being open to learning that it's completely different with Indigenous ways um, is a door that allows you to step into and learn about what could be, you know, where you carry that empathy and compassion and learn of the Indigenous ways. So what does it mean to be an ally and how can we support and lift up the Indigenous students and Indigenous educators in our district?
1: I think uh, to be an ally is uh, to be open to continuing to learn, to understand that Indigenous people are diverse with their multiple worldviews. Um, we all come from different places uh, and different people, and we're all connected to uh, these places. And, and from those places that we're connected to, the those places, um, inform how we see ourselves in the world. And I think as, you know, good allies, um, and from my own understanding of working uh, within this district, uh, I've come to see that good allies know they've come to learn when they need to step forward, when they need to step to the side, and when they need to step behind. And I think that's really an important thing that our, you know, the allies who want to be allied to Indigenous education, to nations, to communities, to students, to to Indigenous educators in the system is really understanding that. And it's, you know, a really tough lesson to learn um, because uh, Eurocentric thought is quite competitive. And from an Indigenous understanding, we're all in the circle. And when we're all in the circle, we all see each other and there's no hierarchy. And, uh, from Eurocentric thought, there is a hierarchy. So coming to understand, uh, a, a different philosophy of how we see each other and how we relate in the world, allies, uh, need to, as Stacy has shared, you know, understand that, uh, indigenous worldviews and communities and nations are very relational and our kinship uh, networks are really important. And um, that is the foundation of our way of being being connected to land as a land base. Um, we get all our, um, you know, spirituality and our practices from the land and being in connection. And so we have many, many amazing allies uh, in, in this district doing really good work. Um, but it's really about, um, for me personally, it's about good relations and i've I've shared this uh, concept. It's a Nehiweban concept of good relations is is foundational. It's a natural law with uh, within uh, Nihio, uh, uh communities and society. but in order to we need to be in good relations with one another. And so that's my one other advice for allies is really to maintain good relations.
0: That's a great takeaway and a great phrase where you said. When to step forward, when to step beside, and when to step behind. That is something that we can all take away and think about when we are thinking about our reconciliation journey. Um, Switching gears here, last year, the province announced the new graduation requirements starting next year, uh, the 2023 to 2024 school year, where all secondary students in BC must successfully complete at least four credits in an Indigenous focus course or coursework before graduating. What does this mean for students and what course options are there in the Vancouver School Board?
3: Yes, this is true. There's a required mandated course where all BC students will need to graduate with four credits of Indigenous-focused coursework. At the moment, we have BC First Peoples 12, Contemporary Indigenous Studies 12, and we have English First Peoples at the 10, 11, and 12 grade levels. But I'm also understanding that... Places can be very, or schools can be very creative, communities can be very creative of making a specific course for their community that could fit this requirement. But in Vancouver, I know these English and socials focused courses to be our, our main options.
0: So, um, the courses that you mentioned, Indigenous uh, First Peoples 12, is that available at every secondary school?
1: There are a number of provincial example courses that are available, and many of them were mentioned by Stacey. It depends on um, the schools and what teachers have historically been teaching those courses or what are most likely going to be offered in the years to come. Uh, based on uh, student choice, um, we hope that moving forward, and this is such an amazing time in, you know, BC history where we actually have Indigenous-focused courses are now mandated. So, it's the first time that, you know, Indigenous histories are not elective courses. So, our histories. And languages and cultures are no longer elective, which I think is significant and historic in that regard. Um, but we also have, as Stacy said, uh, locally developed courses uh, that are can that are being developed in relation with the three nations and across the province. Any sort of locally developed course has to be done alongside the nation and has to be approved, uh, by the ministry in order for it to be a, a course offering. So that's really excited because that's exciting because that's where we can have some amazing courses that are really land-based, uh, like canoeing, uh, canoe, uh, culture and traditions. Uh, um, there are also indigenous language courses that can be offered. Um, and that's really, uh, dependent on, uh, where the capacity of the First Nations is. So if you're going to develop a course for Hunkameenam or you're going to develop a course for hoklaminum or an, another Indigenous language, that has to be done in, again in and in alongside in relation with the nation and um, we hope in the future that we're going to have some of those course uh, courses established. So the future looks exciting for the diverse courses that are going to be offered. And much of the courses uh, that Stacy has shared earlier that are being offered have been offered for a number of years and just it's, what's significant about this moment is now they have to be offered. Kids have to graduate with four credits. So, you know, what's exciting for me is how is this going to transform education 15 years from now, 25 years from now, right? And when now that every student leaving the education system is going to have a four credit course of learning and just think about the ripple effect that's going to have on non-Indigenous families. And those kids go home and they share the knowledge and the teachings that they've received from their educators in the classroom, uh, the communities that they go in to learn alongside, Um, where, you know, we're going to be as a Canadian society 50 years from now. Um, I think it's an exciting time. And I think this goes a long ways uh, to continuing our reconciliation journey.
0: So, um, what I'm hearing at is uh, there will be courses available um, to take to meet the, the graduation requirements um, and it may not be the exact same courses at every single school um, but uh, there will be options for students and they will be able to complete those, those requirements. Um, so Prairie, from your perspective, when you heard this, you know, I, I know you're in grade 10 now. So when you have to when you heard that you have to take these courses by grade 12, what was your first reaction? Oh,
2: well, I was excited to do them and I, I'm doing a socials one and an English one, both them next next year. So I am happy to do that. And I'm excited to learn more and experience all the different um, cultures and the yeah. Awesome. Uh, Lastly, are there any resources that you would
0: recommend to students, parents, or other educators who are interested in deepening their reconciliation journey or learning more about Indigenous practices?
3: There's so many options and books and films and blogs available. Too many, too numerous to number, but I know one off the top of my head is Chelsea Vowell's Indigenous Rights. It's really accessible reading. Uh, She mixes humor with fact and it's informative and it covers a lot of uh, the big picture in short snippets. So anything that tweaks someone's interest there, they can then do a deeper dive into A book or again film or other digital source based on that topic. I know Bob Joseph's blog is really informative and accessible reading, quick reading as well and then again just springboarding into other options that people want to know about more from there.
2: Well, the one I'm reading currently is called "Braiding Sweetgrass" for young adults by Robin Wilkimer and has been adapted by Monique Gray Smith. And I've only just started reading it; I'm only like a few chapters in, but it's already been very like attention grabbing, and like I've already learned so much from it.
1: I think for myself, um, there are so many amazing resources shared. I think you know for all Canadians who are non-Indigenous who want to continue this journey is you need to go into community. You need to open up your hearts and mind to being relation with the nations. You need to attend events where you're, it's open for non-Indigenous people to, to attend. You need to be in relation in the learning so that you can listen and you can observe, and then you can take that away. You need to be witness. Um, a lot of learning um, from an Indigenous perspective needs to be relational and needs to be experiential. And so get out there, uh, get to know people and don't be afraid and uh, attend events. You'll. It's amazing how much you'll learn uh, by being in relation and that's an Indigenous uh, way of being is learning by Doing, hearing, observing, and uh, experiential is key.
0: Thank you all for joining us today and sharing the good work you're doing to advance Indigenous knowledge and practice in our classrooms. Uh, Prairie, I want to thank you especially. It's really great to hear directly from students and to see how is this really impacting um, the future
2: generations Thank you for having me. It's been such an honor to come and share my opinion
3: and talk. Thank you for the invite and for allowing us space to share today. We have a reoccurring
0: segment on the show called Matter of the Month, where we address the most talked about topics. Today, we're diving into a pressing issue that's been making headlines in our community, the lack of air conditioning in schools. With unexpected extreme hot weather hitting our region, families are expressing concerns about their children's comfort and well-being. Let's explore the situation in the Vancouver School District and discuss what we're doing. Joining us today is Hans Loffelholz, Director of Enterprise Risk and Safety Compliance. Welcome, Hans. First off, can you tell listeners about your role in the district?
4: Sure. As the Director of Enterprise Risk and Safety Compliance, my role is to support and lead strategic initiatives that impact employee safety around wellness. Our department, the health and safety department, our focus is on promoting access to wellness initiatives and programs for employees, as well as looking at all aspects of employee safety. And this ensures that we're in compliance with WorkSafeBC regulations, as well as we have operational success for all groups within the Vancouver School Board.
0: So employee safety, I mean, ultimately will also impact student safety, correct?
4: Absolutely.
0: And on this topic, Hans, do schools in Vancouver have AC?
4: Well, that's an interesting question. Um, A lot of our schools in the uh, last 10 years um, have been considered for heat pumps, and a number of them actually have had heat pumps installed. So we do that depending on the funding that's available. So this is a really important piece of information to understand. These heat pumps are like air conditioning. It's pretty much doing the same job, and they're just a little bit more efficient. So they heat and cool our buildings.
0: Okay, so, um, and from my personal experience, um, the the heat pumps are, like you said, are almost just as efficient as air conditioners, minus a few technical details, um, but they do cool the, the area that you're in. Um, the users don't really experience much of a difference. Um, what about older schools? How do those buildings stay cool for our students in the summer?
4: Well, it's interesting. So we have a few strategies, but maybe a little bit of background. I think what we have to realize is that the climate in Vancouver has changed over the years. And the type of extreme weather that we experience today is a little bit different than what we experienced a number of years ago. So our schools, some of them, we have 110 uh, sites and they were built decades ago. Some of them are very old. So we don't have all the features built in like air conditioning. So for those schools, we have different strategies. We ask that, um, you know, if we need to, we move to larger spaces where the air may be cooler. Some of the hot air goes to the, goes to the top. So that could be a cafeteria or a gymnasium. In the morning, we ask our workers to open up the windows to let the cooler air in so that gets the temperature of the building a lot cooler. We open up interior doors to allow the airflow, and we try to keep our blinds closed on windows so that the solar uh, impacts, so the impact from the sun coming in windows, isn't as significant to the learning space. All this is combined with most of our schools that have um, circulating heat systems or air systems. What we do is we have our building engineers turn those on as soon as they get in in the morning and that draws in the cooler temperature. So, you know, in the morning it might be around 14 degrees and we try to draw in as much of that air into the building before school starts. So it's nice and cool to start the day.
0: Those are really good strategies. And I would find that um, you can also apply that to your own personal house if you do live in one, um, because many houses in Vancouver also don't have AC, especially the older ones. Um, what can we do from an employee and student safety perspective if or when a space gets really hot?
4: Yeah, I've got, um, you know, a department that is focused on the health and safety of our of our people. And what we'll do is we'll maintain a view of the 7 to 14 day forecast to see what's coming down. So I know this week it's going to be a little bit warmer Thursday, um, but not really as extreme as we've had uh, a few weeks ago. So for our employees, we talk about strategies and it's important to note that we have to acclimatize to the heat. So in May, a hot day in May is going to feel more significant than August when you're out in the summer or on the beach or something. So these early days are going to have the most impact or feel like they have the most impact.
0: That's very interesting. But yeah, I think now that I'm looking back um, May and August, probably the temperatures are quite similar on some days, especially what we've experienced uh, the last couple of weeks. But because we expect it in August, it's almost like it's not as big of an impact than in May um, when we were expecting maybe just high 15, 19, under 20 degrees.
4: So from the Health and Safety Department, what we'll do is we'll go out to a space, we'll look at uh, the the room, and we'll see if they've implemented some of the strategies that we've talked about and make sure that they're in place. And we'll also monitor um, to ensure that we're in compliance to the WorkSafe BC standards.
0: Okay, and so and if they haven't um, complied with these standards, I guess you will be enforcing that or making sure that the schools do comply with them?
4: I wouldn't want to use the word enforce. Um, (laughs) We use a little bit softer language. uh, But the idea is just to make sure that as many strategies as possible have been implemented. We want success. That's what we're looking for.
0: Yes, of course. From a health and safety lens, then, what do you do on days when uh, you experience extreme heat?
4: Well, the first thing is that we wanna make sure that everyone's staying hydrated. So if you need to, we bring a water bottle to work and keep that nice and cool. That's gonna help keep your body temperature stable. Wanna dress appropriately, so sometimes uh, summer fashion can come a little early and that's important. So wearing light-colored clothing or light-fitting clothing or loose-fitting clothing, uh, something that allows the air to sort of pass through and, and go over your skin is really good. You know, avoiding heavy clothing, Um, if you're indoors, and dark, heavy clothing if you're outdoors is really important. Um, You can have a wet cloth or bandana if you're outside, but really trying to keep uh, as much airflow around in your body cool. When it comes to activities, we usually suggest that we alter the intensity or the strain of the activity, so we prefer people to do light activities when it's really hot. So that may mean altering the type of physical education classes that are going on. But you can also take advantage of our natural shade and cooling. So a breeze underneath a tree is really important. So classes could go outside if that was available in, in their area. Um, the other thing we want to remind everyone is to monitor for signs of heat stress, which can include heat exhaustion, heat cramps, things like that, and ultimately um, heat stroke. So it's very important that uh, you understand the signs and symptoms and that you monitor for that.
0: That's excellent advice, Hans. Um, Thanks for shedding light on this month's Matter of the Month. We hope this podcast has been informative and helpful to our listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review. Your feedback helps us improve and create more content that you'll like. Remember, we release episodes monthly on the last Thursday of the month. We'll catch up with you then. VSB After the Bell, produced by the VSB Communications Department, Special thanks to music teacher Mr. Bonnell and Nightingale Elementary students for the original theme song. Keep up to date with district news. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at VSB39, or Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Vancouver School Board. And don't forget to subscribe to VSB after the bell on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.